Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus uses the word church for the first time. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, we read a lot about the church. Paul says the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom. We're told that the church is the family of God. The church is like an outpost or a a group of citizens who are away from home. We learn a lot about the church, but in Matthew 16, Jesus uses the word church for the first time. He looks at Peter who had just said, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe that you are the son of God, the Christ. And Jesus says, on your confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for the past few thousand years, we've seen Jesus keep his promise. And I don't see any reason that we should start doubting him now. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. From the small church that is meeting this, uh, this weekend under the tree in the African uh, desert to the church that is meeting for the first time right now, I mean, as we sit here right now. There's a church in Northern Neck. Uh, There's a place in Virginia called Northern Neck. Uh, If you've never heard of it, Whitestone, Virginia. Uh, New church, Crossroads Church is, is meeting for the first time today to micro churches in the southwestern part of Virginia, groups of 15, 20 people getting ready, getting together to, to gather together to change uh, their neighborhood for the sake of Jesus Christ from, uh, from the, the farthest tip of Patagonia to the, uh, to the highest mountaintop of North America. Jesus is building his church on this continent, on, an, on every continent, in places you've never been and you'll never hear of. Jesus is building his church. But the Bible doesn't just tell us about the church so that we can use it in our vocabulary or so that you can hear a really great sermon about it, although you might, you know, you might get to do that, right? Jesus tells us about the church. The Bible tells us about the church to invite us in, not so that we can talk about it, so that, but so that we can uh, participate in it, so that we can embrace it in our lives, this gospel community. That's the point of the book of Acts, to see Jesus building his church, often in very unexpected circumstances and even unfavorable circumstances. In three passages in the book of Acts, Luke, the author, is going to paint for his readers a picture of what the church looked like when she did what she was supposed to do. Now, there are plenty of other passages when Luke records the church and we're like, I don't want to be a part of that New Testament church, right? Uh, but there are three passages when Luke highlights what the church looked like when they did what they should do. Now, Luke is writing the book of Acts, primarily to a wealthy man named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. We knew that he had heard about Jesus. We knew that he, he uh, had been taught some things about Jesus, but he had some doubts. So Luke says, I'm going to write to you so that you may have certainty concerning the things which you've been taught, so that you can have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then we read these three passages about the, the church. Now, we might wonder, why would Luke put this in there. Luke is writing to assure Theophilus about uh, these truths that he's learned about Jesus, and he teaches them about the church. It begs the question, if you were going to help somebody shore up their relationship with Jesus, firm up their faith in Jesus, what would you want to teach them? Would the church have a place in that story? For Luke, As he helped Theophilus build up his faith, gain certainty concerning the things which he had taught, Luke saw the church as, pardon the word, but essential in this conversation. 
He wanted Theophilus to understand the church. Here's why. Because the church, when she is on mission, displays the beauty of the gospel in ways that nothing else can. The church, when she is on mission, displays the beauty of the gospel in ways that nothing else can. Mark Dever wrote a book about the church, and he simply titled it, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. The Gospel Made Visible. So Theophilus would have read these passages, and he would have wondered, what caused this? What caused this group of people to cross political boundaries? Because if you read the Bible and you look at the the church, you realize that they were from all over the political map. They crossed ideological boundaries. They crossed racial boundaries. They crossed socioeconomic. I mean, every boundary you can imagine, they crossed. Theophilus would have wondered, what would cause this? So here's the question we're asking. Is anyone asking that question about you? What would cause this? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are looking at some of us saying, what in the world's wrong with them? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you living for Jesus. You living for Jesus and people asking you what causes you to live for Jesus. Are you making the gospel visible? Are you making the gospel visible in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family? Are you making the gospel visible on your team? Are you making the gospel visible? This morning, I wanna borrow a phrase from Dawson Trotman, who's the founder of The Navigators, a great ministry that reaches many military men and women with the gospel. Uh, Dawson Trotman founded the, The Navigators, and he began by reaching young men in the Navy. And he would gather them together at his house and teach them some of the fundamentals of Christianity, and they would have Bible studies. And then he would send them back to their ships to start Bible studies on their ships, and very much changed the world because of that model. But Dawson, as he tried to describe Christianity to these people, he, he, to these uh, young Navy men, he would draw a circle and he would show, show spokes on this circle that were sort of fundamental to the Christian life. And one of them was Bible study and one of them was prayer and one of them was witnessing. And he would say, you've got to do these things. As a Christian, you've got to do these things. But every time he drew the circle, he had one phrase that he would write over the whole thing to kind of sum it up. And here's the phrase that I want you to remember this morning, living the life, living the life. The question that Dawson Trotman would press home to those navigators and the question that we wanna press home as a church is are you living the life? Are you living the life? Christianity is not merely a set of doctrines that we believe, though it is certainly that. It is not just a Sunday morning gathering when we get together with other believers, though that's certainly part of it. It's not merely a moral code that we live by, though there are certainly morals involved in it. Christianity is all of these things and more. And at the heart of it is trusting and following Jesus Christ in all of life. So I wanna talk to you this morning about living the life, about living the life as making the gospel visible as a church, both when we gather together and when we scatter. The church in Acts chapter two understood this. They show us what it looks like to live the life. But I wanna throw some caution flags up. It's easy to read passages like Acts chapter two and get discouraged by our own experience with the church. We can read Acts chapter two, verse 41, when 3,000 people got saved and baptized and we're like, man, I've never seen that. 
Like the churches I must have been part of, they're just not that good. We can read some passages in the Bible and become discouraged about our own experience in the local church by comparison. But listen, there are plenty of other passages that you would read that would make you say, I don't want to be a part of that New Testament church. Right? People as a pastor sometimes will say, man, Jeff, don't you just want to get back to the New Testament church? And I always ask, which one? Which one? Because there are some good ones and there are some really rough ones. Right? As far as I know, no, nobody showed up this morning to take communion drunk. Right? That's a good thing. First Corinthians, that was a problem. Yeah, okay. I'm glad we don't have to address that one this morning. All right? So I want us not to grow discouraged. We need to understand this is a selective passage. It's not an exhaustive passage. So let's be encouraged by what is going on at Catalyst Church. Let's just time out real quick if you haven't noticed it. We had two baptisms this morning. Right? That's, I heard you clap. I was clapping too underwater. Right? We've had baptisms. We had a missionary announcement. She's fully funded. Praise God, right? We're excited about that. This week, I was, uh, last Tuesday, I was talking to uh, one of our church members on uh, a part of our uh, evangelism community group, and I asked the group this question. Do you think Catalyst Church has a culture of evangelism? Why or why not? And what can we do to make ourselves, to, to, to grow in this area, to get better? Do you think Catalyst has a culture of evangelism, which is part of the theme and, and, and thrust of this book, developing a culture of evangelism? And Nick, uh, who, uh, whose wife had a baby this morning, a healthy baby, we're praising God for that. Uh, Nick said, you know what, Jeff, over the past year that we've been involved at Catalyst Church, I'm so excited I'm so excited at the growth I've seen both in myself and in Catalyst Church in regards to reaching people. He talked about a group of guys that are getting together on Wednesday nights and he was just encouraged and encouraging. Friends, we are a growing church. So that's what we see in Acts chapter two, a growing church, a group of men and women gathered together, making the gospel visible. So Luke records in Acts chapter two, verse 42, and they devoted themselves. Okay, let's stop right there. We're gonna talk about the devotion of the early church this morning. We're going to see their devotion, but there's one more thing we need to make clear. We cannot rightly understand the devotion in verse 42 until we understand the conversion in verse 41. It's critical that we don't get this out of order. In Acts chapter 42, we read about the devotion of the early church. They devoted themselves. You can see that right there in the text, but we can't understand that apart from the conversion in verse 41. In the first 41 verses of Acts chapter two, Luke records this powerful moment when the Holy Spirit falls, people get saved, the church is born, and uh, the Holy Spirit brings them to place their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word, Peter's word about Jesus, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's Acts chapter two, verse 41. And then in the next few verses, he shows us the devotion of this church. But I would do you a tremendous disservice if I called you to imitate their devotion without calling you to experience their conversion. It is far too easy to expect Christian devotion from people who have never experienced Christian conversion but you cannot live the new life until you've experienced the new birth. Christian devotion flows from Christian conversion. Obedience flows from grace, never to it. You can't obey your way into the family you have to be adopted in. You can't obey your way in to the Christian family. It ain't possible. 
Paul tried, Philippians chapter two and three. You can't do it. You must be adopted in. But the good news of the gospel is that we can all be adopted in. The good news of the gospel is that no, how far, no, no matter how far your disobedience has run, it's just as soon as the father ran towards the prodigal son, so God will run towards you in your repentance. Tim Keller explains it this way. The gospel is not I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel is I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. So as we talk about the devotion of the early church and as hopefully you're stirred on and spurred on to increase your own devotion, let's remember that and they devoted themselves in verse 42 flows from the conversion they experienced in verse 41. Having experienced conversion through repentance and faith and demonstrating that in baptism, just like we saw this morning, they devoted themselves. Out of the overflow of their conversion, they obeyed. There's a point in the Old Testament that that makes this illustration really well. In Exodus chapter 20, God calls Moses up on on Mount Sinai to give him the 10 commandments. You've probably heard of the 10 commandments. Some of us could name a few of them, less of us could name all 10 of them, even less of us could probably put them in order. But, But God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai to give him the 10 commandments, but But before he gives the Ten Commandments, he makes a thundering declaration. He proclaims something that sets the context for the commandments. Listen to what God says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And then he goes on in verse 3 to begin giving them the Ten Commandments. But the commandments only made sense in the context of a relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gives them the commandments. So the question is, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? God said, I am the Lord your God. Is that true of you? Is he your God? Again, Adrian Rogers said of baptism, baptism is your way of saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I've been buried with him. His death has my name on it, and I've been raised with him. His resurrection is the resurrection life I'm living, and I belong to him. So as we read about their devotion, we've got to remember that it only makes sense in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you obeyed him in baptism? Are you demonstrating that relationship through devotion? So let's look briefly at Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47, and we're gonna talk about living the life, see these four devotions of the Christian life. We're gonna see the four devotions of the Christian life. There they are up on the screen. Learning the gospel, you cannot, cannot honor a Jesus you don't know and you won't honor by shallow thinking. We're gonna talk about loving one another in light of the gospel. If the gospel doesn't lead you into community, it's not leading you at all. We're gonna talk about worshiping God in light of the gospel. We respond to our conversion by worship. So the gospel governs that. And then evangelism, we're reaching others with the gospel. If you don't long for others to know the gospel, you don't really know it yourself. So first of all, they were devoted to learning 
They were devoted to learning, learning the gospel. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to even use the word learning because some of us hear that word and we're out. We're done. We're checking out already. We are running as fast and as far as we can because we hear the word learning and we're automatically bored. We think of a mumbling teacher like Charlie Brown had, wah, 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 right? That was every teacher in our experience. We feel the cold wooden desk with the metal uh, legs that would touch against your legs when you had shorts and it would wake you up because it was so cold. We can think of a stale chalkboard filled with irrelevant information, or perhaps right now you just think of a Zoom screen with your eyes just absolutely glazed over after the fourth Zoom class of the day. But we're not talking about merely growing in our academic knowledge of God. That's not what they were learning. We're talking about deepening our enjoyment of God. Some of you are bored by God because you don't really know him. You're bored by God because you don't really know him. You don't know that in eternity past, he chose you or that when he created the world out of nothing, the stars sang for joy. You don't know that he fills the earth with the beauty of a sunrise and a snowflake as a reflection of his glory. You may have a knowledge of these things, but you don't know him. So when we say that the early church was devoted to learning, they were devoted to deepening their enjoyment of the God who created them and called them and saved them in Christ. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now Luke mentions this first on purpose. The early church was gathered around and governed by the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles. They didn't have the book of Acts, right? They were living it. So they couldn't turn to Acts chapter two and say, okay, what do we do now? Right, because they were, I mean, they, they were living it. But there was a set doctrine that was recognized as true and they were unapologetically committed to it, which meant they would have gathered and wrestled with some of the apostles' teaching and they would have asked questions like, what does the text say? What does the text say? We've all been in Bible studies in which someone who is well-meaning, and listen, I've said this, you've probably said this, they said, well, I like to think about God as dot, dot, dot. Pastor Mark Dever said he was in a Bible study one time when somebody said that and he responded as graciously as he knew, knew how. Well, that's very nice, but I want to know God as he actually is, not merely as you think of him. I'm far more interested in knowing God as he actually is, not merely in our opinions. So they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the apostles' teaching. They asked questions like, is this in line with the apostles' teaching? Can you get to that idea from clear and simple and plain understanding of what is taught? The apostles didn't leave the church a decoder ring that we have to figure out. The scriptures aren't meant to be a complicated jigsaw puzzle. They show us Christ. We have this in our Bible, preach the word. That's the command given to pastors because the Bible is the book given to Christians. So are you a learning Christian? Are you devoted to the scriptures? Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? And I don't mean that you're devoted to the apostles' teaching and so you dismiss the rest of scripture, right? Like a, a red letter Christian, some people call it. They say, man, I love the red letters because Jesus said those, but the rest of them I ain't too sure about. That's not true, okay? All scripture is breathed out by God. You can trust the black words too, not just the red ones. So we, we, uh, we, we wanna devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The gospel is too good for unclear teaching or unclear thinking, but we've gotta devote ourselves to learning. So are you a learning Christian? Are you devoted to the scriptures? The, the Bible must be as precious to your soul as food to your body. You cannot get on very long without the word. At least Jesus couldn't. 
which means you shouldn't expect to either. And even if you could, why would you want to? Why would you want to live a life void of or even only scarcely visited by the voice of God? Wouldn't you rather have a consistent communion with him? Wouldn't you rather have his promises ringing through your ears and echoing through your thoughts? Parents, don't you want to remember the love the father has for you as you try to love your children well? When you suffer, do you not desperately hear, need to hear the refrain, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You can't be comforted by Bible verses you don't know or you won't read. In your evangelistic efforts, do you not need to hear Jesus say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, will, I will never cast out. So when you have that awkward conversation and that person says, you're an idiot if you believe in Christianity, you need John 6, 37 ringing through your ears so that you'll get up and do it again. Be a learning Christian. Devote yourself to the scripture. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. The early church valued the apostles' teaching to the point of devotion to you. Do you. You aren't meant to go through life with a shallow knowledge of God. Devote yourself to learning. Learn the mystery of how God called you to himself just as Jesus called Lazarus out of that grave. Learn the miracle of how God gave you a new heart that loves him in regeneration. Learn how God opened your eyes to trust Christ by faith and how he granted you repentance to turn from the sin to which you held so closely. Learn how he justified you through the sacrifice of his own son. Learn how he adopted you into his family. Learn how he is sanctifying you, making you fit for heaven. Learn how one one day he will put an end to evil's influence on you and on the world in which you live. And one day he will dwell with you forever. Devote yourselves to the apostles teaching. Be a learning Christian. Number two, be a loving Christian. They made the gospel visible in how they loved one another. Luke uses the word fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now that, that word has taken on a life of its own in the church world. We have fellowship halls in our uh, church buildings, which is where we really fellowship, around potluck meals, right? We've, many of us have, have been to fellowship halls and fellowship events. So I, I tend to think of uh, the best, what is in hum, my humble but accurate opinion, the, the best scene in the Lord of the Rings movie of the Fellowship of the Ring. When they're gathered together at the Council of Elrond, and they, at the mid, there's this circle of mighty warriors, and at the middle of the circle is the ring, and they all know that the ring has to go to Mordor, and that's gonna be a really dangerous journey. And so they're all, one by one, they'll stand up out of bravery and say, oh, I'll take the ring, I can do it. And somebody else will stand up and say, you can't do it, man, you're this or you're that. And so all of a sudden, they're all standing up and arguing, and here, uh, little Frodo, right, the, the, um, the hobbit, stands up and says, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. And all of them, all these mighty warriors look at Frodo, who is in no way a mighty warrior, and they say, I'll go with you. You, you can have my sword and my axe and my bow. Flowing blonde hair, right? All right? See, if you've seen it, you know. But the best part, though, is right after that, out of the bushes rolls Samwise Gamgee who is not a mighty warrior, but is Frodo's best friend. And he says, Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. 
That is the best picture of fellowship in the whole movie, right? You're not going anywhere without me. If you're gonna suffer, it's going to be with me. You're not gonna suffer alone. If you're gonna wrestle some things with some things, I'm gonna be in the ring with you. You are not alone. D.A. Carson says that uh, Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. To be devoted to fellowship is a costly commitment. Friends, if the gospel doesn't lead you to community, it's not leading you at all. The text says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That sounds a lot like the church today, right? All things in common. I mean, we're not arguing about nothing these days. Okay, wait a minute. All right, hold on. You see, what had happened was they argued about other stuff. I told you there are other verses in the Bible. But when we hear this, that they had all things in common, it doesn't mean that there were no divisions. It means that they had commonality in all things. It means that our consciences can lead us to differing conclusions and we don't need to be divisive towards each other because of them, because we are united in the gospel to the point of sacrifice. You, you don't make the gospel visible when you keep believers at arm's length or you refuse to inconvenience yourself for others says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this does not mean communism. You're gonna see later on in Acts chapter five that personal property is not bad, but it is costly to be in fellowship. It is costly to be in fellowship. They were devoted to loving one another, even at great cost to themselves. The question is, are you? Are you devoted to being in fellowship with others even when it's inconvenient for you? even when it costs you something. Kent Hughes, Pastor Kent Hughes explains, fellowship costs something in the early church. It's not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not punching cookies. It does not take place simply because we're in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or a small study group with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and they go away saying, there's no fellowship there. The truth is we will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. They were committed to each other. There were no spectators. So let me just ask you a question. What prevents you from being devoted to fellowship? Know the answer to that question and confront it with the gospel. Your conversion leads you into fellowship, into community, not into isolation. So one of the markers of a person having coming to grips with God's radical grace towards them is that they become radically generous towards others. One of the markers of a person realizing that God at great cost to himself pursued them in Christ is that they at great cost to themselves are willing to pursue others. Thirdly, they were devoted to worshiping. And they were... uh, devoted to worshiping. He calls it the the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, John Stott draws two principles from the early church's devotion to worship. It's formal and informal. It's joyful and reverent. The worship of the early church, the worship with which they laid down their lives to get the gospel to their neighbors was both formal and informal, joyful and reverent. Let's look very briefly at these. First of all, it's formal. He refers to it as the breaking of bread and the prayers. It seems as though he had specific practices in mind. There were boundaries that described this breaking of bread and other breaking of bread that was outside those boundaries. There were boundaries that, uh, within which these prayers operated and other uh, prayers that operated outside of these. In other words, this wasn't a situation of they were really devoted so they made up their own sacraments and practiced communion and praying in whatever form they wanted. No, remember, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. See, when the the gospel grips your heart, it doesn't produce in you a desire to worship God however you want. It produces in your heart a desire to worship God as he has commanded you to do. It is our glad response to obey him 
in our worship of him. In addition to the formal act of worship, there was an informal or organic worship. They attended the temple and they broke bread in their homes day by day, verse 46. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. We can fall into ditches on either side of the road here. You can think that worship only occurs in the formal sense on Sunday morning and tell the church to stay out of my house in my personal life. Or you can think that organized religion is a waste of time and the community of the church just stifles you from worshiping God the way you'd really like. Friends, God has to be worshiped his way, not yours. That means he deserves your worship both through the formal gathering of the church and in your daily life in your home. We do not honor God when we neglect either of these, formal and informal, but also joyful and reverent. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad and, and generous, is that you? Is that you? Is that the condition of your heart? When is the last time you would describe your heart as glad and generous? The gospel is good news. It doesn't make us miserable. Now, it will make you miserable in your sin. It won't pat you on your back while, while you delight in your wrongdoings, but it doesn't leave you there. It's good news that brings great joy. Joy that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's also reverent. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. My friend Kevin Hass, who's the pastor of By Grace Community Church in Yorktown, asked this question. When was the last time that the deepest part of who you are was in awe of God? When was the last time that the deepest part of who you are was in awe of God? Another pastor points to this verse and says, I think the key is found in verse 43 in the phrase fear come upon every soul, a joyful trembling sense of awe that you don't trifle with the God of the apostles. That is not our experience. Today, for most people, including most professing Christians, God is an idea to talk about or an inference from an argument or a family tradition to be preserved. But for very few people, is God a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, shocking, present reality? He is tame. He is distant. He is silent. Where are the churches of whom Luke could say today, fear, awe, wonder, trembling is upon every soul? Friends, we make the gospel visible as we worship, formally and informally, with joy and with reverence. And finally, as we reach others with the gospel, as we reach others with the gospel. Now, this devotion is not specifically mentioned, but it's clearly inferred. The early church was devoted to the cause of making Christ known. They were absolutely convinced that God intended to use them, each one of them, to reach others for Jesus. Do you? Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How do you think he did that? How do you think he did that? He did that through men and women who had experienced conversion and were absolutely convinced of two things. Number one, God is always at work drawing people to himself. And number two, no one is too far gone for the gospel. Number one, God is always at work drawing people to himself. You will never experience a day that God is not at work. There, there's, there is no situation in which God is not at work. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are men and women in this neighborhood who are waking up this morning and God is at work in their heart drawing them to himself. I'm convinced that there are students over at CNU who are waking up this morning and God is at work drawing them to himself. Do you believe that? Are you convinced that God is always at work? And are you convinced, number two, that no one is too far gone for the gospel? No one is too far gone for the gospel. The early church was convinced of this and they were devoted to the work of the 
of evangelism. So this is the early church, converted and devoted. Remember in Exodus, before he gave the Ten Commandments, God declared, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. At Pentecost, the first half of Acts chapter two, God gave them the Holy Spirit and said, I am the Lord your God who purchased you through Christ my son and bought you out of sin. This is God's repeated phrase to his people, you belong to me, you belong to me. So is that true of you? Do you belong to God? In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion, which is a meal in which we proclaim to God, we belong to you. You've purchased us through Christ your son and we belong to you. But is that true of you? It can be. Friends, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can belong to God and you can display it through baptism. Do you remember what Adrian Rogers said about baptism? He said, baptism is your way of saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I've been buried with him. His death has my name on it. I've been raised with him. His resurrection is the resurrection life I am living and I belong to him. Friends, if you're a Christian and you need to be baptized, fill out that connection card. Let me know. Let's take step that step of obedience. But now, friends, let us proclaim through the Lord's Supper that we belong to Jesus. So if you have one of those uh, communion packets right in front of you, I want to encourage you to grab it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, the meal is not for you. The meal is just a a meal that points to a greater substance, namely Christ, and Christ is for you. Feast on him by faith this morning. So friends, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Let's spend a moment in prayer.